welcome to episode 96 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this is the podcast where we debate the difficult decisions of reading and books. Um, in this episode, we will be asking, should offensive books be republished? And in the second half, we'll be comparing two very not offensive books by Barbara Pym, um, A Glass of Blessings and Crampton Hodnet, which I've just dropped on the floor. Um, Rachel, how are you? What are you reading? I'm fine, thank you. Um, just to say to you listeners, the strange noise you can hear is me ironing. Apologies. Um, <laughs> I'm multitasking this evening. It's been a busy week. Um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, the sun finally came out in England today, which has been a long time coming. Mm, yeah. So I'm feeling like summer is here at last. But, you know, as I realised as I started ironing this evening, one of the good, the only really good thing about winter is that you can hide your clothes underneath jumpers. So you don't need to iron anything. <laughs> when you get to the summer, it's like actually people can see what I'm wearing and I need to iron my clothes, otherwise I look like a tramp. So, um, and unlike lots of people, I actually do still have to go to work. So um, I need to look presentable rather than being in my leggings, which I was during lockdown. So, um, you know, that's that's what I, that's why I'm ironing. Um, I do you think if someone's going to like make a spoof of our podcast, you you ironing feels like it's almost beyond spoof <laughs> <laughs> I have Ra- a parody Rachel just goes about her day completely <laughs> unprepared um, so what am I reading well we've, as you've just said we're, we're discussing Pim today um, and so I've read the last uh, the two Pims that we're discussing and it was my birthday a couple of weeks ago um, I've now traversed into a new age category oh, on and surveys which has mm-hmm. been slightly depressing so I've got there a couple of months before me you know how it feels yeah. um we've now crossed the Rubicon to the late 30s I feel yeah that 35 to 44 box is I know I'm like, I feel like this is too broad an age category I'm like I, I don't feel like I belong with those people at the end <laughs> uh many of whom of course wonderful people yes of course <laughs> so I love you all people you know I'm, I'm having many friends who are considerably mm. me I but inside I'm 12 and I don't understand <laughs> what's happened to me. Um, but yes, it was my birthday. And for my birthday, I got uh, Barbara Pym's new, the new Barbara Pym biography by Paula Byrne, which some people may have heard on Radio 4 because it was the book of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was my iron. It's a very Barbara Pym moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's uh, something that I found quite funny is that two of my very close friends at work both bought me independently. <laughs> Um, this biography so I now have two copies with loving inscriptions inside um, and so I, I got started on that after reading my two pims for the podcast and it's absolutely wonderful it's a very very well written biography it's very funny and light very short chapters as well which I always feel is keeps the pace up and um, she's sort of written it in the style of Tristram Shandy oh, wow um, which she's done on purpose because apparently uh, 18th century literature was um, Barbara Pym's specialism when at university, um, as I have discovered. So it's yes, it's very good. I can highly recommend it if you are inspired by what we discussed today and fancy finding out more about Barbara Pym. Don't be put off by the length because it is long, but um, it's it's a quick and fun um, read. So that's what I'm reading at the moment. And um, yes, I think I'll be reading it for a fair while because, as I've said, it's quite long. So, how about you? What are you up to? What are you reading? So, as I was saying to you before we started recording today, I um, I had my vaccine. So, hooray! I am um, well. I'm probably not immune yet, but at some point we'll become immune <laughs> to to coronavirus. Uh, and it feels like it's been a very long time coming, but it's good to finally have it. Um, and before I say what I'm reading, I will just say thank you to Brett, Hannah, Rosemary, and I think someone else who I can't remember who all got in touch after the question I put out last time about the American editions of Marilyn Robinson's novels and whether or not Oprah Winfrey's book club sticker was removable. Drumroll. Turns out not removable. It is printed onto oh, the cover. So that is a shame, isn't it? So that is a shame. I mean, all, more power to Oprah and her book club, but it has sport the designs of those lovely books and has saved me some money because I shall not be shipping them across the Atlantic anymore. I mean, um, make it optional. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <sighs> I mean, I think they did do a print run without them, so maybe there are some out there, but yeah, it's a bit of a gamble. Um... And I am currently reading I Ordered a Table for Six by Nell Stretfield. Oh, 
I don't actually know. How do you pronounce? I know it's not spelt field. Is it pronounced field or is it pronounced feld? I don't know. Yeah, it's pronounced field. Okay, Streckfield, um, which is one of her novels, not as opposed to one of her children's books. Um, and it all broadly takes place in a day, although lots of flashbacks and people talking about the past and all that sort of thing um, around pe- uh, table. F- the people who end up being around a table for six in 1942, I think. And it was one of those. It's one of those war books that was published during the war, so there is that sense of urgency and immediacy in it. Uh, it's it's very, um, yeah, it really shines a light on what it was like to work in London at the time. The, the lead character runs a sort of charity f- getting clothes and things for people who've had their uh, ha- houses bombed out. Um, she's also uh, not the nicest person, but <laughs> quite damaged. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting character portrait, and the, lots of different way it brings lots of different people together at that table of six. Um, it's yeah, it's good. To get hold of Simon. Well, the the original is very hard to get hold of, but Bello have republished it, so oh. um, I think it might just be ebook and print on demand. I could be wrong about that, but but if you're willing to do either of those things, it is much easier to to get hold of than traditionally it has been. Okay, Although my copy is an old copy that I got in Ironbridge Books just before the pandemic started. You always happen to come across these things. Well, I think it's a it's a numbers game. <laughs> if you spend enough time looking, you'll come across them. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the only other no- adult novel by her I've read, or in fact, the only book I've read by her, um, other than this one, was Saplings that Persephone reprint, which I was a little lukewarm about, um, and I definitely think this one's better. Oh. Um, yeah, so I recommend that. It's kind of got Persephone all over it. Actually, that description. Yeah, it does feel very Persephone because they do they re, they do like books about um, unusual jobs that women did in, the, in that period. It's never got hold of a copy. It's yeah, fine. well, I did read. Maybe it was in a Persephone newsletter or something that the reason her books are so scarce was that the factory holding them was bombed, so oh. there was a real shortage of copies. Wow, yeah. poor old Noel Stratfield, eh? Hello, meowing cat. You mm. stay there. Oh, nope. <laughs> okay, uh, so the first half we are asking, should offensive books be republished? And for those who follow my blog, stuckinabook.com, you might have already seen my blog post about that uh, and the really interesting discussion in the comments. So going to retread some of that ground. Um, bear with us. But many of you do not read it, so I'm sure you will uh, enjoy, or at least you'll be new. <laughs> so... Um, I will, yeah, let's not define any of our terms yet. I just want to I'll hand over to you to to, to start where, uh, wherever you'd like to start, I guess. Oh, okay. Um, well, I mean, I, I found it, I mean, obviously I did read your blog post, and um, I found it interesting, that, you know, that, that what caused you to have this thought was in your role as recommending books for the British Library, and um, books that obviously have been published often in the 30s and 40s, and they can contain some unsavoury views. Um and I think um, it's a difficult one because I think from a teaching perspective, we come across this all the time where you've got troubling content in books and, you know, particularly uh, novels to do with, with race, but also sexism. And these books are considered classics and we do still teach them, but we teach them, obviously, raising awareness of the context and pointing out that the views are are wrong um, and, you know, not morally acceptable these days but um, I find I guess my problem with saying they shouldn't be republished is I think well if you don't republish them and or if you edit them in some way what you're doing is pretending that that person didn't have those views and you're pretending that those viewpoints didn't exist at a particular point in time and then what you're creating is a completely unrealistic version of history um and also of people and um I think it's important for people to understand, especially young people to understand that, you know, over time people's views change and attitudes change. And as a society, you know, the reasons why things happened in the past was because people held those views or it was acceptable to hold those views. Um, and I don't, I think it's, it's quite dangerous to basically whitewash history in the sense of saying, oh, well, we just won't republish those anymore and then we'll just pretend that that didn't happen and that humanity has been lovely for the whole of history because that's simply not true. 
And it also means that children don't understand how things like the Holocaust happened if they don't understand that people used to be anti-Semitic. You see what I mean? Mm. Yeah, so um, as you say, I was originally thinking about this specifically, actually, with a book, Miss Lindsay and Pa by Stella Gibbons, that I read with an eye, with an eye of potentially uh, recommending it for the series. And it's a book I really loved, but I won't be recommending it because there is, uh, well, there is some anti-Semitism and there's also a black character who is, um, the, the sort of racist depiction of his character is a very important part of the plot, or at least the way that other people treat him. Um so it was, you couldn't neatly excise it even if you wanted to. Um, and it got me thinking because I think certainly there are some people who responded who had that, the instinct of saying anything goes, republish anything. And some people saying, um, I guess similarly to what, what you've just said that you know, if you contextualize it, maybe with an introduction, maybe with notes, um, then it can give clarity and, and, um, yeah, explain history. Uh, I, I think, there is always that danger, particularly with racism, um, as an example, that uh, people like you and me, who are white, we, we obviously do not agree with racist depictions in novels in the past and might find them uncomfortable, but won't find them personally affronting in the same way that somebody, you know, a person of colour would if reading those. Um, and it's hard then therefore for, for me to say, actually, that's fine because that's the past, because I read it and think, gosh, wasn't that awful? I don't think gosh that reminds me of all the times people have subjected me to similar abuse today for example so i think there is a danger potentially in saying um that we you know society has broadly changed but but we need to also recognize the damage that reading things like that can still do if that makes sense no absolutely and i agree with you entirely um and i think context Context is everything, and I, I think when you're also when you're thinking about republishing books that have got troubling content, you have to think, well, why would I be republishing this in the first place? Is it because that aside, it's a fantastic piece of literature and it's still worth reading within the context of us being aware that the viewpoints being held are unsavoury these days, and we can have discussions about them? Would we be republishing books that you know have no literary value or have no cultural value? Um, then that have got troubling content, I would be like, well, what's, I don't see the point in that. I think there has to be a cost-benefit analysis done here to think, you know, is it worthwhile republishing this book because it has redeeming features in other places and sparks discussion and so on and so mm. I see what you're saying about it, it being troubling for us to, you know, when when you're, you haven't experienced racism yourself um, or sexism or whatever, or disabledism or whatever the, the, the issue mm. is, but it's very difficult for you to have uh, an opinion on it because you can't come at it from the perspective of somebody who's likely to be upset by it. But I, but I also think, you know, what's for me personally, I, I just find the whole idea of, of not republishing something that is considered to have cultural value for a particular country or community just because of some offensive content in it that could be discussion starting or could be... Um, I suppose, a reflection of a particular country's past. Who's, who's right to learn about the past of, of their country or their community um, take Trump somebody else's right to be offended? Do you see what I mean? It's like if you take away, if you say I can't read a text that's culturally significant to the past of, of my history and my community and my country because it, there's a, offensive content in there for another portion of the community, it's like, well... How am I going to learn about the past of my country? How am I going to learn about how people used to feel towards people from different cultures or backgrounds or communities or whatever? If I don't have access to, to these texts, I don't have the opportunity to read them and to discover those views for myself and then to have a conversation about them. I just think it's I think we do risk sometimes now. We're so worried about offending people that we risk essentially removing any opportunity to find discover the truth about people and also. I think what's offensive to us now wasn't offensive to people 100 years ago. What's offense, what isn't offensive to us now might be offensive to people in 100 years' time. Would we want all of the culture we produce today to be erased by people 100 years in the future because of something that we didn't think was offensive now, but people in the future do? I think that is a really, uh, really important... Well, I don't know if, if it leads to making a decision on this matter, but I think people often forget that there are things that we unquestioningly 
believe now that will be considered offensive in the future. And obviously we don't know what those are yet in, in the same way that people writing, you know, like some, maybe not all of these things, but some of these things that we now find offensive would have just thought, blithely thought, well, that's just the way the, the, I describe the world. And yeah, I mean, maybe that doesn't change the answer. Maybe, you sh- maybe things that are coming out now shouldn't be republished in the future. But I think there is a, it was always a danger that people think the the morals of our period are the ultimate morals and they will never progress and we are right now and we've finally got there. Uh, it's interesting you talk about uh, the sort of cost-benefit analysis because I think there is that whole grey area in the middle of things like Stella Gibbons, for example, who where they, I think it's a really good book, but it's not going to change the cultural landscape if that book is or is not reprinted and obviously there's books that are trash that don't need there's no need for them to be reprinted there are books that are things like to kill a mockingbird has the n-word in it a lot but is such a wide widely loved and revered classic that that's always going to be in print um so it's the things in between thinking why why should this gamble be made i guess that was the other point i made in my blog post is that it is a financial decision by a publisher because it's you know we can come with whatever decisions we make uh, philosophically or theoretically, but a publisher has to think: Will might the reputation of our company suffer if we do this? Will we sell copies? Will you know, these sorts of things? Which obviously, you know, you and I don't have to make those decisions. Um, but the, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is you, but the sort of person who just says publishing be damned um, has is is coming from a place where they um, don't have to bear any of the responsibility for the, for the fallout of that. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important to be, I think it's important to have those discussions as publishers and to think who's likely to read these books, whose hands are they going to come into? And if you're publishing a book that is has offensive content and you're not publishing it in the context of it being something where that book is going to be used in an educational setting or where there's not much information about that book or that author available for people to be able to read it and come to a balanced view, then you're opening yourself up to difficulty. No publisher says, I can't republish To Kill a Mockingbird because it's so widely known as a novel. It's a, it's a reflection of a particular period of time in American history. Some people have a problem with it because, again, it's white saviour narrative. And um, But at the same time, that's still, by many white Americans, considered to be a central part of their cultural history. So um, it's... It's also something that is widely studied in schools. We have the discussions about why it's wrong to treat characters in a particular way, and we can have those difficult discussions. And it's an important book to read because it stimulates those discussions, and it also shows um, the ways in which history can be remembered and experienced very differently depending on what side of the racial divide you're on. And like I say, if we if we take away the opportunity for people to read those sorts of classics we have to remember those books have become classics for a reason and we need to think about why that is and that's a troubling conversation in itself why is a book that treats um you know characters in a negative way considered from a particular background or a particular experience considered to be a classic what does that tell us about ourselves as a society should it still be a classic you know we can have these discussions but we can't have those discussions if those books aren't reprinted for us to to read and then to stimulate the discussion and I can see those discussions happening in a classroom or in a university or in a book group. I think there's also the issue that if someone doesn't have a great knowledge of literary history and going into a bookshop, they, they're just all books that are in a shop, I guess. There's, it may well be that people don't pick something off and say, I, oh, this is, I didn't, they may not know this is a classic or it was published 50 years ago or something. It's all just presented side by side and people don't read introductions to books, do they? Um, no. so, <laughs> and should they actually because they always give away the plot exactly which is why I requested to do afterwards for the British Library <laughs> series and was very pleased that they let me um, and speaking of the British Library series I should say of course any opinions I give on this are my own and not British Libraries but something that they have done um, I don't know to what extent because I'm not involved in these conversations is change very s- small details of the books for example um, I only realised this when my book group did Oh, the Brave Music by Dorothy Evelyn Smith, which I, you know, I love, but, uh, there, there is an N word in the, in the original that is taken out of the reprint. And there's a note in front of the book saying that small details have been changed, but without specifying what they are. And I 
I mean, some people are against that. I think if it's something that's so minor and not part of the plot, then it, I think it's absolutely fine to, to remove that sort of word, the slur. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the conversation I had in the blog post and that we've had so far is about racism, but obviously there are many other things that are offensive in books of the past, and I don't think I've ever seen any sexist terminology Indeed. changed uh, in, in, in reprints. No, and I, I think this essentially is, is what troubles me about these conversations because I find that being offended due to issues to do with race seems to uh, dominate the conversation when actually there are many types of offence that are in, printed in books, many types of attitudes towards people of all sorts of, um, you know, like, like I said, disabledism as well, people who have very troubling attitudes towards people with any type of disability that you find a lot in, in novels, particularly the 19th century as well. Um, people with, with mental health issues, all sorts of things like that. You see terrible depictions of people. Um, but that's fine, apparently. But it's only stuff to do with race that's considered to be offensive. And I think if we are going to start dictating what is offensive or what's morally abhorrent or whatever, you know, how do we agree as a society what we find morally abhorrent? Is it the people who shout the loudest who get to decide what gets printed and what doesn't? You know, nobody has the monopoly on offence. So I think it's if we are going to have these conversations, there needs to be an understanding of, you know, where do we draw the line? That's that's what, what I find troubling. Like, for example, with your example of Dorothy Eden Smith. OK, so she uses the N word. And they take that out, but they don't contextualize that in the beginning of the book. They don't say Dorothy Evans Smith used a very offensive word used to describe, um, black people. And that book's taken out of the, out of the, the word's taken out of the book without any explanation. So now we think we don't know that Dorothy Evans Smith held that view. Now, for somebody, my question would be, okay, so she used an offensive word. We took it out of the book, but we now know that by her having used that offensive word, she was actually a racist. So does that taint everything she wrote? Should we not republish anything she wrote because we know that she held that attitude? Where do you draw the line? I mean, the interesting thing in that depiction is that it's a very firmly anti-racist depiction of the black character. So yeah, it is. It gets more and more complicated in that yeah, the person who uses that word is is they're shown they're a bad person. They it's shown that they shouldn't have used it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but yeah. some people would say that it but, does make them a bad person. It's confusing. <laughs> it's confusing yeah. and it's troubling. This is why I think these sorts of discussions and the decision to censor and the decision to edit and to remove and things, I'm just like, well, who's making those decisions? Who decides what's offensive and what isn't? Because personally, I find sexist references incredibly offensive, but nobody seems to think that they need to remove that from a book. Um, nobody seems to feel that they need to include an afterword um, saying, well, you know, there's terrible comments about women in this book. So people continue to read books where women are of all colours, shapes, sizes, backgrounds, are depicted as basically being domestic slaves or whores or whatever. And it's an ashamed for all sorts of behaviours that men get away with without any problems at all. This continues to this day. And there is no debate or discussion because it's just like, oh, whatever. You can't be offended by that. Don't be so sensitive, etc. It's just jokes, just banter or whatever. I mean, that's our lives as women constantly being exposed to these things. And because nobody says that's a problem, it continues to become a problem in society because sexism is not really considered to be any type of discrimination at all. Um, so I think if we are going to have these discussions and we are going to, to talk about these things and remove things from books, we need to have a it needs to be an equal um discussion and not just be about race because i think that's what it has come about become about in our modern society i'm not saying that's a problem because racism is awful is awful and absolutely we should be challenging it and everything but it's not the only form of discrimination that damages people's lives absolutely um yeah and then yeah as, as you say we're not trying to come up with some sort of hierarchy of offense but it does does yeah it only seems that that the racism is is the one that um, is most censored. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a really, this could be a really long and com and a much longer conversation, but I guess we should probably draw to a close. We've only touched the surface of many things, and I hope we've we've done so relatively sensitively. But we'd love to know your thoughts. So, should we republish offensive books, Rachel? Um, within particular contexts, yes, but not as a blanket policy. But I do think 
my caveat to that is we do need to ask ourselves the question of what is offensive, what isn't offensive, and who is deciding what's offensive or not. Yes, I think it is obviously really complicated. I think I still lean on the side of no, at least not as they are, but with a million caveats and all that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's one of those ones which isn't really a yes-no situation, isn't it? But, um, no. But there we go. Ooh, right. Okay, so the we have a... It's not really a question. It was more of a comment we got in, which I don't know anything about, but maybe you do. So a while ago, we did a question in the middle about books about faith um, and authors who did it well. And Louise got in touch to say she thought that Brideshead Revisited does it, did it well. And did we agree? I have never read Brideshead Revisited. I'm very shocked by that, so I know. I bought it in 2004, <laughs> just as I was preparing to go to Oxford. And I thought it's I should read about it. And yeah. I have still not still not done so. Yeah. Do you do you think it does faith well? Do you know what? It's so long since I read it, I couldn't possibly comment with any type of authority, and I'm not going to pretend to have any authority on the issue. Um, I know Catholicism is central to the book, um, but I'm not entirely sure that I can remember in what capacity. So well, these I don't. Thank- know. <laughs> Well, Louise thought it did well, so so check it out if you. I mean, everyone's read apart from me, haven't they? But um, thank you, Louise, for getting in touch. Sorry that we were not able to comment very wisely. <laughs> and on to Barbara Pym, Crampton Crampton Hodnet, which was published in the eighties, but written much earlier than that. Yes. Um, and a glass of blessings that was, I believe, her fourth or fifth novel, uh, the, the penultimate one before she disappeared for a couple of decades. Barbara. Um, which would you like to introduce us to? Um, I don't mind. You you choose. Fine. Um, I will go for... Let's see if, what I can remember. I'll go for A Glass of Blessings, um, which stars someone with the astonishing name Wilmot Forsyth, mm. Forsyth uh, who is in her early 30s. She's married to... Oh, look at again. She's married to Rodney, um, who is a sort of middlingly wealthy civil servant type um no yes yes civil servant and uh they have a sort of fairly placid not quite loveless but not not particularly um affectionate marriage uh she finds a lot of uh her time is spent with various different priests in a very high church we'll talk about that but um she gets to know various of them and gets to know through a friend a guy called Pierce who she starts to be uh, very interested in maybe amorously maybe not and then until she finds out why that's not likely to work um and yeah it's sort of basically a depiction of she's not quite middle-aged i hope based on the fact that she's younger than me but but sort of uh early 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 middle age ennui in a marriage and how she can um sort of find other ways of fulfilling her life i guess is how i would describe it very well described so I've got Crampton Hodnet, which is uh, another Oxford novel, um, and it's set around the arrival of a, a new curate um, who's come to stay with, I can't remember anyone's names. <laughs> no, Miss something and someone else. Miss someone, a wealthy spinster who lives in a large Victorian house in Oxford with her um, paid companion, wonderful period detail there who is very plain and, and boring apparently and um they she likes the the spinster whose name i can't remember um if i had my book with me i would i'm flicking through mine miss miss morrow is one of them she's so she's the companion um oh, miss doggett yes miss doggett that's it so it's basically um the curate moves in he is, as all of the curates in Barbara Pym novels seem to be, incredibly handsome. Um, <laughs> and immediately the gossip begins. And of uh, there's various characters who are, you know, vying for his attentions as always. And um, him and Miss Morrow seem to develop a um, very close relationship. But, you know, will that end up in marriage or not is the question. And then you've also got the, um, the affair of Miss Doggett's nephew, who is an English literature professor at Oxford. Um, he's middle-aged with a, a sort of teenage daughter who's going through her own love problems and a wife who is far more interested in reading books than um, any sort of passion with him. And he 
unadvisedly falls in love with one of his students, which Miss Doggett mm. finds out about, and this becomes the complete gossip of Oxford society, what they're going to do about it. So lots of clandestine meetings in tea shops and things. Um, and yes, ultimately, it's a sort of comedy of manners set in Oxford. Yes. Yeah. Yes, in fact, I did realise while I was reading these that they are two of the very dominant themes of my life, of Oxford life and clergy, living among clergy, having, having grown up in a vicarage, uh, which... Are, um, are curates, tend, do they tend to be very good-looking in your <laughs> Um I should speak carefully here, shouldn't I? Uh, <laughs> certainly none of them I've, I've known have been as young as this one. They tend to be sort of second-career curates that I've known. Um, my father was, of course, a curate once, and sure, very good-looking in his day. But, uh, they certainly—they've um, all been married, the ones I've known as well. So they—they they don't come looking for for love in the way that Barbara Prim's curates. Well, actually, no, they're often not looking for love. They're often looked upon as objects of love against their against their knowledge. Um, I did find this to go to glass of blessings. The clergy. Uh, world there, very baffling because it's so high to be practiced. I mean, it's they described as Anglo-Catholic, but it's essentially Catholic. Although I mean, it's not Catholic, but the fact that they, the priests are all celibate and they're all called Father such and such, and they do confessions. I didn't know any church was that high in the Anglican Church. Seems no, it's, um, I, I found it a bit. I wasn't quite sure. And you know, I'm very happy on more or less anywhere on the spectrum between sort of happy clappy and. Book of Common Prayer, but this is this is a bit too high for 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 me. I felt quite it's uncomfortable sometimes. Bells and smells, smells, yeah. And there's um, surprising little faith going on. Quite a lot of uh, religion and a lot of. Will it never actually? She seems to go for the sort of social side of it rather than that. She, she never actually has a discussion. You never know like what she thinks about God or anything. No, I don't remember Jesus being mentioned. No. Uh, it does feel very similar to this academic hierarchies and spheres of uh, people who discuss things in the abstract and things in Crampton Hodnet. Yes. Um, in fact, would you mind just quickly explain to us where the title comes from, Crampton Hodnet? So, yes. So Crampton Hodnet is the name of a made-up um, parish that the um, – what's his name? He's got a very ridiculous – Marius. Um, yes. The, the curate – he, um, he, him and Miss Morrow go for a clandestine walk um, across Shottover, which I assume is a place in Oxford. That's... Well, it's a lovely hilly part of Headington, which is northeast um, Oxford, and it's it's the only, basically, the only place where you can see any hill. Basically, in Oxford, it's a very flat place, so but you can, yeah, you can go up into the woodland there. I used to often go and have have tree club with my friend Mel in Shottover, where we'd sit on a tree and tell each other ghost stories. Adorable. <laughs> um so they go for a walk there in in the uh in the gloaming so yes. um which is obviously very um you know against all the rules and if people knew where they had been together it's not a romantic thing at all they just go for a walk um because i think they missed the bus or something yeah um, but it, it would look very dodgy if anyone were to see them so he sort of conducts and he's mrs evensong um, because of it, because they missed the bus, and for some, and because he he can't say that he's he's been walking in the twilight with Miss Morrow alone, um, he has to make up that he's taken um, the service at this made-up church as a favour, um, which I found quite funny that all these people in the book have lived in Oxford all their lives, and all of them like, oh right, yeah, no, you went to Crapton Hodnet, um, <laughs> and this now becomes a sort of code word between. Um, Marius and Miss Morrow about their sort of clandestine goings on, which Miss Morrow finds hilarious, but uh, Marius finds less so. So he finds himself caught in various compromising positions as a result. Yes, and if memory serves, they plan to walk back from Shotover to North Oxford, which is a solid two-hour walk. Isn't they're not close yeah, well, to each other? I couldn't sort of visualise yeah. that. I was thinking, oh, okay, I was imagining it being sort of like a little park or something. Across I know, it's, it is. I mean, they could eat, there are plenty of plaques. They could have gone to North Oxford, so I'm not sure why she chose that over. Um, yes, North Oxford is the only part of Oxford I never lived in because it's normal people can't afford to live there. But maybe back when this was written, they were, it was more affordable. It seems a bit dilapidated. Well, weirdly, it's still quite dilapidated, but also extremely expensive. It's sort of, I don't know, decayed grandeur, yeah. um, which comes at a high price. But... Uh, 
Yes, I did enjoy reading about streets I knew and places I knew and and the world. I mean, the the world of Oxford University obviously does not change with any rapidity. Um, and indeed, I had a friend who was going out with her supervisor at one point, which <laughs> is <laughs> ill-advised. Um, yeah, well, before we get into it, actually, could, um, let's quickly talk about our history with Pim. Mm. Um, so I read my first one, which is Excellent Women, in 2004. Um, and I did not like it as much as I thought I would, largely because I'd heard about her being this person who wrote about um, village life and and it was set in London and I was so affronted by the fact that it was set in London that I, I couldn't get past it. Um, since then I've read I think I'd read a couple more and then I've, and then these two. One thing I do find difficult with her is her titles are almost all have nothing to do with the book and so it's very hard to remember how they relate. I get quite cross with her and her stupid quote titles that don't make any sense unless you have read Keats or something. Um, which is why I quite like Crampton Hodnett as a title, at least it does relate to something in the book rather than some tame gazelle or um, The Sweet Dove Died, which I don't actually think that was her original title for it. Oh, that makes sense then. Yeah. Because yeah. it was, was it posthumous? Um, it was published posthumously, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was sort of lightly edited by her biographer at the time. So yes, I've read, I think, five in total. Um, and I... I, I enjoy her, but never quite as much as I think I should. Oh, Simon. I know. Because everyone who has similar taste to me, yourself included, absolutely adores her. And I certainly like her a lot. But um, I don't think I've... I think I did... And I did actually really love some Tain Gazelle, if that's the one about two old ladies in a village. But... Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yes, other than I have, no, I don't adore her in the way that I think that um, would be the film might expect. Yes, I mean because if I if anyone asked me, you know, could you name an author that would be Simon Thomas's cup of tea? Yeah, I would be like Barbara Pym for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, what's your history I'm with Pym? Surprised by you saying this because I, I knew that you'd been a bit lukewarm about her in the past, but I thought, oh, I'm, I'm sure after reading these two, you'll you'll be firmly <laughs> camp, but clearly not. So, I mean, I, my first was Jane and Prudence, and I was actually very underwhelmed. And I think I was blogging by then, so I must have been in my mid-twenties. <laughs> um, and I remember being, yeah, underwhelmed. And, um, you know, because everyone had been banging on, and the bloggers, I think she'd had some sort of renaissance where it had been like Barbara Pym reading week or something. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was like, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that I must love. And then, you know, I saw that Philip Dalkin said that she was a Jane Austen of the 20th century. And I thought, well, this is everything I'm going to love. And I was underwhelmed. I can't remember why. I've not reread Jane and Prudence, actually. Perhaps it wasn't an ideal place to start. And um, people online said, no, you must give her another chance. So I said, OK, OK. So I read Excellent Women, and that is where I fell in love. Mm-hmm. And I've read most of her books now, I think. Um, the Glass of Blessings was a reread for me for this. Um I don't actually know. I tell a lie. I think I don't. I haven't read her her last ones that she wrote in. Must have written in the seventies or eighties. So, um, uh, what my what are they? An academic question was that one. An academic question. I think that's a posthumous one. Oh, okay. Um, and I think it is um, a few green leaves or something like that, and a quartet in autumn. I haven't read those. Um, mm. But I mean, I just find her so funny and the thing is she's very I can see exactly why Philip Barkin compares her to Jane Austen because she has that kind of small world where nothing much happens but at the same time everything happens Mm. and it's all about the emotional lives of women and I think as well that's that's a wonderful kind of that's what's so wonderful about Austen and what's so wonderful about Pym is that they write lives they write about the lives and the emotions of everyday ordinary women who um, normally don't get their voices heard and um, whose stories are considered to be uninteresting and certainly uncanonical, which is probably why Barbara Pym stopped getting published. Um, because, you know, they aren't books about the big issues of the day, if you think about what was getting published in the 60s and 70s when yeah, she was yeah. passion. Um, and the reality is that you read them and it's like you're reading something entirely contemporary. What she's taught I me, mean, yes, okay, we don't all live in worlds where we all go to church and everybody's, you know, we've got spinsters and that kind of thing. And, you know, women who get married and no longer work and, um, 
that kind of environment, but the emotional side of things is still absolutely there. And I just, and also it's just hilarious. I was absolutely wetting myself reading Crampton Hodnet, which I do think is probably the funniest of her novels. Hmm. Um, so many things, and just like so many dry asides that she makes, and it's just, you know, absolutely brilliant. And she's also, I mean, she did an English degree at Oxford. She was obviously very, in, you know, she was very literary, and all of the references that you pick up, like she talks about, you know, Marius is referred to as Marius the Epicurean. And for those of us who've done traditional English degrees, we've all had to suffer through Walter Pater. And, you know, I'm <laughs> like, oh, at that. And it kind of, it's like, you know, all these little, Asides that show you just how intelligent Barbara Pym was and how well read she was. And I kind of, what I like as well about the books is thinking, you know, she was this unassuming person who worked as the secretary of some, you know, random, I think it's like the International Africa Organization or something. So she, to the outer, to other people, she looks like, oh, you know, she was just some secretary working in some dusty office somewhere for her whole life. But actually behind the scenes, she was writing these novels that show, there was so much more inside of her than that, and I just, I just love that. Yeah, I agree. I really, I think they are really funny in that dry uh, way. Which, in I, th- I think I'm right in remembering that Cranton Hodnett is third person, and yes. Class of Blessings is first person. Yeah. So um, you, yeah, it's more of an authorial humour in Cranton Hodnett, whereas Wilmot is very much uh, a sympathetic character who I f- felt to me very like. Barbara Pym, yeah. in as in as much as yeah, she is this, she is dryly commenting on everything. She's quite detached from from the people around her. She's always slightly judgmental about them, and it's not particularly she's not malicious, but she's always watching and and assessing and judging and laughing at people to herself. It felt like yeah. I think that distance is also there because she feels a bit distanced from her own life, doesn't she? She's sort of you know what mm. am I here for? What am I doing? And that kind of on the surface, she seems like she's got a very perfect life, but actually she's very dissatisfied, which is why she decides to go to Portuguese class and, you know, find out more about peers. Yes. Um, something I did find in both books is that there is a lot of a lot of characters, particularly in Cranston Hodnett, you get a lot of them at the beginning, and it did take me a while to disentangle who they all were and how they connected. Yeah. Um but yes, that all settles down. And yes, Pierce is a friend of a friend or something, or brother of a friend, I forget. Her best friend from being a Wren in Italy, his, her brother. That's right, yes. And he lives with a gentleman called Keith, mm. who may or may not be his colleague. Um, and I can't, I can't remember some of those things where it's ever quite revealed that obviously Pierce and Keith are a couple. But, it's never um, said, is it? No, it's hinted at a lot. It's around the same time that Good Behaviour by Molly Keane came out, I guess, with a similar premise. Um, and I mean, yeah, Wilma's not throwing herself at Pierce or anything, but she's obviously got a twinkle in her eye and he is awkwardly trying to get out of it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing sensational that happens in either of these novels. All the sensation is happening under the surface. Yeah. Even the, yeah, even the affair between the, or the would be affair between the tutor and the, and the student sort of takes place in the British Museum. So it's not, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not uh, over the top or dramatic. Everything is sort of quiet and and no, nonetheless painful for that. Yes, and I think, you know, it is all about the often underwhelming um, events of everyday life or, you know, when things seem like they're an absolute nightmare and you'll never get out of them and eventually they all resolve themselves quite quickly and, and easily. And it's, um, yeah, it's, Again, it's a world where nothing happens, but at the same time, everything happens. Because when people do, I mean, most people do have what we would probably term small lives, don't they? We're not all out saving the world and doing exciting things. We're, you know, trundling off to work every day and, you know, meeting up with friends for coffee. And that that kind of interest that the characters take in other people's lives is part of that. It's like, you know that's where you get your excitement and you know and an everyday level you get your excitement from living a bit vicariously don't you through other people and what i did find interesting in both books is how connected different groups of people were in in a way that and what they they're, they're not putting everything out on the surface but they're very emotionally connected with other groups in a way that i'm not sh- sure often happens in novels or maybe even in life because in Crenton Hodnett the the university world and the world sort of peripheral around world around it vary in each other's pockets and that's not 
something I ever experienced, certainly, you sort of move from one to the other. And then in Glass of Blessings, particularly Wilma, is very engaged with everything that's happening with these clergymen, and there doesn't seem to be a sense of boundaries in some way. I don't know, it's... I, I feel so like... She, it, she very quickly sort of inserts herself into the world without seeming to have any reason, like, she's not got any particular kind of fervency about her religion to make them want to. Mm-hmm. You know, Rodney comes home one day and mentions that you know, a bloke at work's just been fired for nicking stuff, and then she gets him a job working in the. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all it is all a bit silly, but I guess that is how life works. though sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it can do. I guess it will. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that we know exactly what Wilmot thinks of everybody in this book, but I never really got what they thought of her. Like, well, maybe with Pierce we sort of did, but with the priests, I have no idea what they think of her. Are they? Do they welcome all these attentions? Do they wish she'd mind her own business a bit? Wilmot doesn't care, does she? That's why we don't know. Well, I guess she doesn't think about it. Yeah, she sort of. Yeah. Well, some, yeah, and for someone who's a little self-deprecating and unsure in some ways, is very sure of herself in other ways. Yes, she yeah. is, and I think she reminds me a little bit of Emma, actually, by Jane Austen. That that kind mm. of you know, unthinking sense that I'm right and what I'm doing is the right thing to do. And she does sort of get her come up. She has her sort of Frank Churchill moment, doesn't she? When she thinks it's like the box is like the piano. She thinks Mm. that she knows he's given her this surprise gift and then it turns out to be someone entirely different, which then makes her life much more complicated. And, um, you know, like she thinks that Piers Piers is in love with her when actually he's not. And um, it's, slowly i think she works out by the end of the novel that actually her life is is perfectly good as it is um and it's that journey of of her waking up to herself a little bit that i really liked but i'm sensing you didn't like her as a character um i liked reading about her as a character i don't think i'd like her as a person but uh but as a character i certainly enjoyed spending time with her uh because i mean I'd, in real life i'd be terrified of being on the wrong side of her but um, actually, no, I probably wouldn't. I wouldn't have a clue that she was thinking these things in real life. I just think she was a nice person who was involved in the church community. Um, and she would think I was terrible, probably. But, I don't think <laughs> anyone could ever think of Simon. <laughs> Very sweet of you. I think the thing, one of my favourite relationships in these books is between Miss Morrow and Miss Doggett in Crampton Hodnet. I, as you say, it was very of its time and, and earlier, the companion uh, relationship um, and I think, I think it's done really interestingly the way you know, that sense of dependency and potential escape, but also not really looking for escape, um, the sort of ways that uh, freedom and independence uh, are dealt with in that relationship. I really enjoyed, um, and it felt it didn't feel as stereotyped as that relationship can be because sometimes you know the, the companion would speak back and sometimes. Um, they would reassess what they were thinking about each other. And I, yeah, I thought that was really cleverly done. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the relationships are very well observed in all of her novels. I think she, I think she's also very good at showing how people use each other and also how people are kind of can sometimes be sort of deceived in their intentions towards other people. Yeah, she's good at relationships that aren't static, isn't she? Because yeah. a lot of novelists, they set up people and that's how they relate to each other throughout. But these are constantly evolving, even if it's in small ways. Yeah, and people are always sort of surprising people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I, I love sort of Miss Doggett, who has this very like rigid idea of, of what everybody's roles in life should be. Um, and it, it's like, you know, when people deviate from that she's personally offended by it um yes and her attitude is just but she she fails to see how her attitude towards other people is horrible and you know she expects a lot from people but then doesn't expect anything of herself if you see what i mean yeah and it's also got the only any slight touch of surrealism in any of the either of these books with those two students who speak supposedly in unison at all times who may or may not be a couple as well. I couldn't quite work, work that I, out. I thought that, that I got the sense that they were. Yeah. 
dancing their yeah. way through the park. <laughs> yes, they they they're very funny and slight. Yeah, because it's I don't know. It's the sort of thing that doesn't quite make sense, but if you think about it too much, but but they're That's quite fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, as I talk about them, I. I'm filled with admiration for them, but there's something, I don't know what it is, that stops me quite connecting and loving them. So I really liked them. I enjoyed reading them. I thought I thought the writing was brilliant, but there's, I don't know, that special magic ingredient missing that I can't put my finger on. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm surprised and um, a little bit sad that you don't... And angry. I'm not angry. <laughs> Um, But if I had to choose one of them, and indeed I do, for such is the premise of this podcast, um, I think because I did really like Miss Moru and Miss Doggett's relationship, I will have cramped and hardnet just just edges out a glass of blessings. Yes, I did think that that was incredibly funny. I think... um, I enjoyed them both for very different reasons. They're very different books, actually, and they, they felt very different. I remember being quite – when I opened up A Glass of Blessings, I was quite surprised to find myself reading a first-person narrative, mm. um, which did kind of alter my relationship with the book a little bit. I think uh, The World of Crampton Hodnett, it was more overtly funny, I think, um, than A Glass of Blessings, which is a much flatter book in some respects. It's still very dry and witty, but it doesn't have that same sort of sense of hilarity about it. Um I think if I, you know, were to recommend a pin to somebody, I think I'd be more likely to give them Crampton Hodnet than a glass of blessing. So I think I would go with with that one. But I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Barbara Pym. I do think she is the Jane Austen of the 20th century, and I, you know, she is absolutely underrated, and she should be taught. Well, the thing I say she should be taught in schools, but kids wouldn't get the humour. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, there we go. Um, on the same page when it comes to him in our choice, if not in quite in our adoration. Yes. Uh, in the next episode, we will be turning to another person I've seen described as the 20th century Barbara Pym, in, um, 20th century Jane Austen, in fact, mm-hmm. which is Ian Delafield, looking at Tension, which has just been republished by British Library Women Writers um, series, and Thank Heaven Fasting. Um, so I look forward to that. Indeed. And thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.